morning again, church. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in chapter 27 today. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Kevin will be up and get you one right to your seat. You can follow along with us. Matthew chapter 27. Anybody need a Bible? Just raise your hand. Oh, over there. I think Greg's just doing that so you can feel good about yourself giving the Bible out. <laughs> Greg's got all his Bibles there. Just uh, Kevin's walking around by himself. I'll just raise my hand. <laughs> Anybody else need a Bible? We're going to cover 50 verses today. Now, don't be shocked by that, okay? Don't be shocked by that. We're looking at the cross of Christ, and we're going to look at the whole crucifixion in one setting, and I think it's real important that we do. And so we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 50. The title of my message this morning is Decisions, Decisions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Lord, thank you for the sweet time of worship. You are worthy, Lord Jesus, to take the scroll and to open it. Lord, you are worthy of all of our praise, all of our adoration. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time that we can spend together just in worship. And now, Lord, in the study of your word, we ask that you would bless our time together. Give us not only information, but application in our lives that would draw us closer to you, that would change our hearts, that we would be more like you. We ask your blessing upon our children downstairs as they're being taught your word as well, that even at a young age, these children would come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. Bless our time together, we pray. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Read a story about a husband and wife who prior to marriage decided that, uh, he'd make all, that he would make all the major decisions and she would make all the minor decisions in their marriage. Well, after 20 years of marriage, he was asked how this arrangement had worked and he said, great. And all these years, I've never had to make a major decision. Get it? So she basically made all that okay. I read a poll of 200 people that came up with the results that a typical adult makes 27 decisions a day, usually starting whether to turn off the alarm or hit snooze. And each decision can take up to nine minutes, which adds up to a mind-numbing four hours just trying to work out what to do per day. I don't think we do it that much. I don't know who they polled. But the poll said decisions seem to get easier to make when there's something in it for us. They also said the decisions are more quickly made when the choices are threatening to us. Now, do you want an all-expense trip paid to Hawaii? You bet. I don't need to ask. You don't need to ask me twice. I made the decision. I'll go. Okay. The plane's going to crash on your way. I'm not going. (laughs) Those are pretty easy, you know. I mean, have you ever stopped to think about how many decisions we make on a daily basis? When to wake up, what to wear, how to prioritize our day, what to eat, where to go to eat, you know, know, what time I got to leave in order to make this appointment. Now, sometimes decisions are easy. Other times it takes great wisdom just to make the right decision. Now, if we follow God's plan and follow God's word, we'll make decisions wisely and we'll avoid the difficulties and heartaches that come from life. If not, life can be a series of wrong decisions, wrong choices. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Before us is a pitch of three decisions that were made. If you're taking notes, these are our three points. We're going to see, number one, a bad decision. Number two, an indecision. And number three, a final decision. Let's start with a bad decision. Two bad decisions actually were made. First, look at verses one and two. 
When the morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Bad decision number one, the chief priests and the elders of the people plotting to put Jesus to death. Notice this word plotted. Uh, two reasons why they had to plot to put Jesus to death. Number one, Jesus did nothing worthy of death. So they had to come up with a fake reason. But number two, the Romans had actually taken away their right to capital punishment a few years before this. Now that being said, certainly the Jews found ways to circumvent that law. Remember when the woman was caught in adultery, they were, they were going to stone her until Jesus intervened. They did stone Stephen to death. They wanted to stone the uh, uh, Paul to death. So stoning was not out of the question. But the thing that we need to realize, even as we begin looking at this text this morning, is that these religious rulers, these leaders, they're not the ones in charge. Jesus is the one in charge. Though they are responsible for each decision that they made to put Jesus to death, Jesus would allow them to do so, but he would do it his way. See, Deuteronomy 21-23 tells us, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus made the decision himself to come to this earth, take the curse of sin upon himself in our place. Let me also say this. Jesus decided where the place of, uh, of his death would, would come for. In Jerusalem, the same place years earlier, where Abraham went to offer his son Isaac there on that mountain, and, and the Lord intervened. Remember, Isaac asked Abraham, when will we get the sacrifice? And Abraham said, the Lord himself will be the sacrifice. And that's what Jesus did. God in the flesh coming himself to sacrifice for our sins. So even though the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death, Jesus gave himself up. In fact, John seven or 10, 17 and 18 tells us, Therefore my Father loves me, Jesus says, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So know that first and foremost, Jesus is in control. Secondly, we come to the bad decision made by Judas. Now we looked at Judas a couple of weeks ago and, and kind of looked at this story, but, but uh, now we see in verses 3 through 10, Judas regretting the decision that he made. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. I find this fascinating. That all the time that Judas spent with Jesus, seeing his every action, his every move, that Judas would first of all betray him. But now he's remorseful about it. He says, I, I betrayed innocent blood. Don't you think that if Judas saw any fault in Jesus whatsoever, that he would justify his betrayal in his own mind. Well, you know, uh, I remember the time that Jesus, you know, stretched the truth, or the time Jesus gossiped, or the time Jesus did this or that. But Judas had nothing. Jesus was perfect, lived a perfect life, never sinned. And Judas realizes this after the fact. He made a bad decision, and he says, I betrayed innocent blood. And he goes to these religious leaders and says, stop, basically. And, and they say, sorry, dude, that's your problem, not ours. But I just see the hypocrisy here. You know, the chief priests and the elders would pay to the, you know, for a betrayer, but would sentence an innocent man to death. 
So what does Judas do? Look at verses 5 through 10. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now this is interesting because we have what some people would say, it's a so-called discrepancy or so-called contradiction. At least some people would say so. It says here that Judas went out and hung himself. He hanged himself. Yet in, in Acts chapter 1 verse 18, Peter addressing his fellow disciples said of Judas, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. So his entrails became his extrails. That's what it says. Some of the, some people read this and go, oh, I see a contradiction there. Uh, two things are going on there. Matthew says he hanged himself. Peter in Acts chapter 1 says he fell down and, and busted the gut. So there's a contradiction. Really? I mean, do you really think that Peter would be that dumb? Do you think that Matthew would be that dumb as well? These people knew what happened. There's no contradiction here. Each is telling a different piece of the story. You know, put it all together. Judas buys the field. It's, it's a, it's a, it's on a precipice. Judas is in remorse, ties a rope around his neck. He goes to hang himself. The tree breaks and, 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 and not only does he hang himself, but he falls down on the ground and his guts come out and, and, and that's what happens. No, no contradiction, no discrepancy, complimentary rather to each other telling the full story. Now there's a couple interesting comparisons I want to point out about Judas and Peter. If you recall, Jesus predicted both of them would fall that night. To Peter, assuredly I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said, oh no, I'll never deny you. Yet Jesus predicted it and it happened. Jesus also predicted that Judas would betray him when he said, who is it? Who is the one that betrays you? And Jesus said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. At that point, Judas dipped his hand in the dish. The second interesting parallel is that Jesus tried to help both of them. Remember after Peter denied Jesus the third time, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. We talked about this briefly last week. I don't know how you picture it. Maybe you thought Jesus kind of looked at Peter and went, You rat, you idiot, how could you deny me, you untrustworthy friend? Not at all. I don't believe he looked at him that way. I think it was a compassionate, loving look. The kind of look that Peter needed because it says Peter went out and he wept bitterly. I think it was that, that look, that help that from Jesus that, that kept Peter from doing what Judas did and committing suicide. Because Peter was overwhelmed with sorrow. He went out, he went out not like Judas. You know, Judas, Judas went out and wept bitterly, wept bitterly. He said, I betrayed him. I was wrong. Peter didn't hang himself. Peter was repentant and restored. Judas, on the other hand, who was helped by Jesus as well. Remember there in the garden. And then, and Judas comes in with, with, with all the soldiers and, and they go to arrest Jesus and, and they come to Jesus and Judas came and kissed him. And Jesus turned and looked at him and said, friend, why have you come? Jesus calls him friend. I don't know if I would have done that. I would say, you betrayer, you, you know, you know, how could you do this? 
But see, Jesus was giving him a chance to stop, a chance to not go through with this. Even at that moment, Judas, it's not too late. You can turn, you can repent. See, therein lies the difference. Peter repented. Judas was just remorseful. He was just sorry, sad, sorrowful. The Bible says in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, that godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation, but the sorrow of this world produces death. It wasn't a godly sorrow. It was just sorry that it happened. Sorry that he felt bad. He was sorry that he got in this situation, but no real repentance. He made a bad decision. He realized it, but instead of seeking forgiveness, instead of seeking restoration, seeking God, who according to Psalm 147.3, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, Judas chose the, the, the most selfish thing a person can do, and that is to take your own life. Let me talk about suicide for a moment. This time of year especially, and and man, you've been hearing about a lot of kids that are taking their own lives. And it it, it breaks your heart. There's a lot of disappointment and uh, discontentment and despair and loneliness, even among Christians. But the cure for it has not changed. God's word always has the answer. No medicine can truly deal with the disappointment and discontentment and despair and a desire to self-destruct to escape the pain. Those struggling with suicidal thoughts need wise and faithful friends who will share with them the Word of God and walk with them over time as they learn to deal with life's disappointments. The devil wants to alienate people, get people alone, separate believers in times of of trouble and anguish, but God's Word says we need each other. We need to be praying for one another, having fellowship with one another. Let people know that you care. Let people know that there's hope in Jesus Christ. You know, experts in outdoor survival affirm that one of the most powerful forces that allows a person to make it out alive is hope. It's hope. Once hope is lost, it's not long before the situation rapidly deteriorates. Now, perhaps the reason God brought you into contact with someone who is struggling with suicide is so you can remind them to keep fighting for hope, that there's hope in Christ. Listen to Romans 5, verses 2 through 5. Because of our faith, this is in the New Living Translation, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials where we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because He's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. No matter what you're going through this morning, we have hope in Jesus Christ. The worst decision a person can make is to take their own lives. It's rebellion against God. It's taking control of your life out of control of what God would have for you. Always a bad decision. We all have hope in Christ. Judas made a bad decision. He hung himself. Then this brings us to point number two, which is just as bad, an indecision. It's a story of Pontius Pilate and his unwillingness to decide what was really right. Reminds me of the story of a man in the Civil War who couldn't decide which side to be on, so he wore a blue coat and gray pants, tiptoed out into the battle, he ended up getting shot from both sides. That's how it is when you're indecisive. You try to live in two worlds, you try to appease everybody, and that's what Pontius Pilate was trying to do here. Look now at verses 11 through 18. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? 
And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. The Roman tradition to appease the crowds was to show mercy one time a year. It was an attempt to control the, the mobs and being able to say in an uprising, Look, 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 look what we've done for you. In the year that Jesus died, likely 30 AD, there was a prisoner named Barabbas. Now Pilate thinks, hmm, I could give these people a choice between Jesus and Barabbas and I can step back and I don't have to make a decision at all. But you see, a, a non-decision is a decision. It's a wrong decision, but it's still a decision because you can't be neutral about Christ. Jesus said, you're either for me or you are against me. There is no middle ground. Let's take our example of going to Hawaii again. Let's say this time, you know, that the church wants to give you an uh, all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii for Christmas. No plane crashes. You, you leave out of Springfield, you go to, to Dallas, and from Dallas a straight shot to Hawaii. You go, oh, I don't know if I really want to go. I can't decide if I should go, and I don't know. That then tomorrow morning rolls around, and your plane leaves without you. Well, you made a decision, you know, a, a very bad decision, but you made that decision. In the same way, to not decide about Jesus is to decide against Jesus. And that's what Pilate's done. He had within his power to say, I find no fault in Jesus, I release him. And that would have been that. But he didn't. He was wishy-washy and he leads it up to the people. In verse 17 he says, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Isn't that Interesting. Do you, you ever catch that? They handed him over because of envy. The word envy here means anger, discontent at the good fortune or possession of another. And it really shows their heart towards Jesus. The word literally means to look at with evil content. Now, envy is sometimes, sometimes called the, the green-eyed monster, you know, because it portrays someone who's, who's looking so hard that their eyes turn green. You know, maybe like the Incredible Hulk, I don't know. When it comes to this word envy, so often the sin, and it is a sin, it's hardly ever preached on. It's hardly mentioned as a sin. There's plenty of sermons against pride and against, you know, anger and laziness and greed and lust, even gluttony. But when it comes to envy, most of the time in the church, it's silent. We'd much rather confess uh, one of the other sins than envy. We'd much rather say, well, I have this problem with anger, or I have a problem with greed or with laziness. We don't even mind confessing this sin of lust or pride. In fact, those other sins you could probably find help, self-help groups from. You know, you've got a problem with anger, we have an anger help group, you know, or a counseling. You know, if as a result of last Thursday you have a problem with gluttony now, well, there's all kinds of weight counseling programs you can get into. And gamblers have self-help groups, you know, sponsored by the government. But envy... Yeah, it doesn't have one. I mean, you can envy those self-help groups because envy doesn't have one. But no one's going to admit they're struggling with envy. No one really wants to say, oh, I don't like that person, man. I can't believe they got that new car, that new house, or I can't believe their family's bus. I can't, I don't, I don't like that person. 
No one wants to say, I have a problem with envy. What does, it say? what does the Bible say the remedy for envy is? Well, Galatians 5.16 says, walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Envy is a work of the flesh. So the cure is to walk in the Spirit. When we're walking with God as we should, then we don't care about what everyone else has or does. You're going to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who, who weep. You're going to be happy for those that have. In fact, Hebrews 13.5 tells us, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Man, who cares what anybody else has or doesn't We have Jesus who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. If we have Jesus, we have everything. See, love is the answer. It's a fruit of walking in the Spirit. Because envy is born of hate, and it's only cured by love. A love that only comes from having that relationship with Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said this, God's truth judges created things out of love, and Satan's truth judges them out of envy and hatred. Just see the difference. These religious rulers hated Jesus. They were envious of Jesus. And Pilate knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But let me say this. That doesn't make Pilate any less accountable for his actions, as you'll see in a moment. But look at what happens next. This is very interesting. Look at verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. His wife sends him a message, Pilate, don't have anything to do with this, this just man. See, God had revealed to the wife of Pilate that Jesus was a just man. She had spiritual perception. It's too bad that Pilate didn't listen to her voice. Men, that should be a you know, wake-up call for us that, that you know that how important it is to listen to her wife. Sometimes they have just a spiritual perception that we as guys just kind of miss. There's been many times, especially on, on Sunday mornings, where, where my wife will say to me after service, what's wrong with so-and-so? I said, I don't know, it didn't seem like anything was wrong with so-and-so. Well, I, I, I noticed that something just didn't seem like, maybe you should give them a call. All right, I give them a call, and they're going through a difficult time, they're having a problem. How did you know that? I, I didn't, I mean, I thought they were fine. It pays to listen to our wives. You know, Pilate should have listened to his wife. You know, Pilate, he heard many voices that day. He heard the voices of the multitude saying, crucify him. He heard the voices of his wife saying, have nothing to do with this just man. He heard the voice, no doubt, of his own conscience attesting to the innocence of Jesus. And he heard the voice of Jesus himself. And sadly, he listened to the wrong voice. Look now at verse 20 through 22. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Now this is interesting. Follow me on this. The name Barabbas is interesting. Barabbas is more of a title than it is of a name. Barabbas means son of the father. One or, or, or two of the original manuscripts give his name as Jesus Barabbas. That's important to, to, to note that because during Jesus' time on earth, there are many people named Jesus. It was a common name like, like John is today. A lot of Johns, a lot of Marys, uh, but there were men named Jesus. Now, if Barabbas, if it's true that Barabbas was known as Jesus Barabbas, Jesus' given name, Barabbas' title, son of the father, kind of offering himself as a, a messianic figure. 
This makes the question that Pilate asks all the more interesting and fascinating. Because the very way that Pilate poses the question causes us to wonder if he isn't making a, 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 a comparison, a contrast. He said, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Why did he say who is called Christ? Again, could it be he's making that contrast between Jesus who is called Christ and Jesus who is called Barabbas? I think he was. He's saying, which Jesus do you want? This 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 militant, you know, uh, Barabbas Messiah who wants to overthrow Rome, or is this Jesus who's beaten and, and bruised and, and a different kind of Messiah? Which one do you want? It's time to make a decision. Choose between a man who, who led a rebellion and murdered, or a man who never broke any law. And it's interesting because it's the same choices we make today. Who you're going to follow with your life. It's also interesting that, you know, Jesus was accused of leading an insurrection when he'd never done so, and Barabbas was guilty of the very thing. Yet the crowd made the decision. They said, free Barabbas, let Jesus be crucified. And from the original language, it can be translated, they screamed, they screamed it at the top of their lungs, let him be crucified. We have this, I've shared with this before, I, I have this Alexis at home, and I have an app on it that reads the scriptures to me. And over the last week, I've been listening to chapter 27 over and over again, and the guy that's reading it, he's got this very calm voice, and it's kind of soothing stuff, until he gets to the part where it says, let Jesus be crucified. And, and he screams it. And so, you're laying in bed, and you're almost asleep, and I was like, let him be crucified! And it shakes you up, and, and, and but, but that's exactly how it happened here. They're, they're screaming this. They're, they're at the top of their lungs. Look at verse 23. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. I think the most heartbreaking words we find in this account of the cross of Christ is actually found over in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verse 15, where it says there, so Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. Pilate had to make a choice between the easy way or the right way. And just because he says he washed his hands, of it, it doesn't mean a thing. He was responsible. The choice, uh, the kind of choice that we have to make time and time again in our life, choosing between the crowd and the voice of the Lord. Which will prevail for you this morning? Do you want to please the crowd? Or will you listen to Jesus and give your heart and life to Him? Pilate fought with it for quite some time. He tried every way possible to not have to do anything about Jesus. But there was no escape from the decision that he had to make about Christ. Pilate, he tried to pass it off so he wouldn't have to deal with it himself, but it still came back to him. Because every man, every woman must determine what he or she will do with Jesus Christ. In a sense, we all sit, like Pilate, on the judgment seat determining what is to be done with Jesus Christ. Either you'll accept Him or you will reject Him. But to not accept Him is to reject Him. There's no neutral ground. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. And that was Pilate's problem. He's trying to remain neutral, indecisive. But the decision was already made. Jesus doesn't allow it. Either you've received Him or you've rejected Him. If you do not confess Him, you will deny Him. Each of us must make our own determination as to what we will personally do with Jesus Christ. And that ultimately will decide where you'll spend eternity, either in heaven with Christ or hell for all eternity. 
And please understand, God does not send people to hell. People go there because they've rejected the sacrifice that Jesus paid for them not to go there. See, that this crowd, they were filled with pride and hatred toward Jesus, even shouting, crucify him. That, in reality, was their own death sentence. The same is true today. You know, it's interesting to me that, that in this unjust trial of Jesus and through his, crucif- through his crucifixion, five times it's pointed out that Jesus was declared innocent, not guilty. Three times by Pilate, once by Judas, and once by the thief on the cross. Listen, God went through great lengths to confirm the innocence of Jesus in order that we might understand the true meaning of his death and resurrection. Jesus, the innocent one, died on the cross, not for his sin, but for ours. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then this brings us to our final point, and that is the final decision. And ultimately, the final decision was left to our Lord. He could have at any time said, I'm not going through with this. I'm done. I'm out of here. But he didn't do that. He allows it to happen. Let's look at what Jesus did for us upon the cross, and then we'll close and enter into a time of communion. Look at verse 26 through 31. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off, off and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Notice what took place in Jesus' life from my own life. In verse 28, we read that he was stripped before men. Now let's get honest for a second. I mean, with those that are family, with those that you, you love, being stripped before them is bad. It's embarrassing. But it's a whole lot different being stripped before someone you don't know. I can't think of a more humiliating situation to be in than to be stripped before those I don't know. In fact, this was one of the most degrading things during the Holocaust when, when the, the Jews would, would, they would actually strip them of their clothes and they would have to walk around naked. But this is what they did to Jesus Christ. He was humiliated to that capacity for your sake. And when that, in that process, then they placed his crown of thorns upon his head. Now this was in complete, really, mockery, because uh, Caesars, you know, on their coins, they had an inscription uh, upon the Roman coin, had Caesar with a royal wreath around his head, depicting some sense of honor and appreciation. So they put this crown of thorn on Jesus' head. Now, one commentator writes that this thorn was made from a plant called a naba. He says it was a very common plant, of the Arabs with many small and sharp spines, soft, round, and, and pliant branches, leaves much resembling ivy of a very deep green, as if designed mockery of a victor's wreath. The thorns themselves are anywhere from two to three inches long, about the size of a 16-penny nail. Now, they not only placed it upon Jesus' head, we read, but then they took the staff and they began to hit him on the head, causing those, those thorns to go deeper into his skull. Then we read, look at verse 32. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. 
Verse 35, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Stop there for a moment. I, for one, am extremely glad that he didn't come down from the cross when they said that. That he stayed upon that cross. But when I even look at this cross piece that Jesus actually was carrying, and they believed that it wasn't the full cross, just the cross beam. I can't imagine him carrying that. Most Bible scholars suggest that it weighed between 110 and 120 pounds, just that beam itself. And it was actually tied to his soldiers, and he would carry this splintered piece of wood uh, upon his skirt open back. When they scourged you, it was a, made out of a cat of nine tails, a whip that had embedded glass and lead within the whip itself, and it would whip it and pull away the flesh and expose the muscle and the nerve endings. Most people didn't make it past the scourging. And then the pulling out of his beard, as Isaiah tells us, he was not even recognizable as a man. And then placing this, this beam of wood upon his shoulders with, with just moving back and forth and then taking it off and giving it to Simon or Cyrene to carry. I mean, just the pain itself as he walks to that place of crucifixion. It makes you appreciate all the more what the writer of Hebrews uh, chapter 12 verse 2 says. As we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, knowing that his death would bring about our life, brought him joy. When I think about the Lord going to the cross to take upon himself the penalty for my sins and all that he endured, it blows me away. I mean, think about this for a moment. Death by crucifixion was not in any sense noble. There's no honor in that. There's no glory in it. The cross was very similar to our electric chair today. It was a device used to kill those who have committed horrible crimes. In the same way that we wear crosses around our necks today uh, to remind us of Christ, you never ever even think about wearing an electric chair around your neck. Maybe a syringe because, you know, people you know, put to death through lethal injection. But you see, we've taken something very, and it's very nature, very crude, and it's a symbol of the most hideous form of punishment, and we've placed it upon our necks, and we, and we stand before it and preach. Why? Because at the cross, something marvelous took place. Now consider this as well. As much as I look at all these verses this morning and see the cost that Jesus Christ paid for my sin, I also realize, you know, all of these lines as we continue to read them, one after another, all fulfill prophecy that was given to us. When they're actually dividing his garments, David said that they would do that. When they offered him drink, it was David that told us they would do that. When it describes the, 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 the crucifixion of Psalm 22, exactly what happened to Jesus. Isaiah 53, the same thing. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. See, this is all just in fulfillment of his love displayed for you and for me. It's amazing. And, and as Jesus hung on the cross, I also realized that when he was given the opportunity to walk away from the suffering of the cross, to make that decision to not go through with it, he wouldn't. He didn't once back away from the suffering. 
Look at verse 34. It says, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. Now, what is gall? Well, in those days, if you found yourself suffering on the cross, you wanted something to, to help deaden the pain. And those people uh, you were compassionate on, on your behalf, would offer you this wine drink mixed with gall. So gall was this uh, ingredient that would deaden the pain. Kind of like an embalming agent uh, that would take away the severe suffering that anyone would go through while they're on the cross. But it's interesting to realize that Jesus Christ said, no, I don't need a sedative. I'm not going to have anything that's going to dole in the effect as he carried our sins upon himself. See, Jesus Christ bore the entire weight of the sin. It wasn't something that he shied away from, but something that he accepted wholeheartedly, knowing once again that it would bring us joy and bring us to a place this morning where we can have that fellowship and friendship with God. Finally, let's look at these last few verses. Uh, we'll close with this and enter in a time of communion. Verses 41 through 50. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The last aspect of Jesus' death on the cross is the cause of death. Jesus is hanging there on the cross for my sins, for your sins. And as he's hanging there, his only means of oxygen and life is lifting up his legs upon that cross. Listen to how Dr. C. Drummond Davis, a medical doctor, describes what happened to Jesus upon that cross from a medical perspective. He says, the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercarpal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to even get one short breath. But finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward and exhale and bring the life-giving oxygen back to his lungs. After a while, the orthostatic collapses through the insufficient blood circulating to the brain and the heart would follow. The only way that the victim could avoid this was to push himself up by his feet so that the blood could be returned to some degree of the circulation of the upper body parts. When authorities want to hasten the death or terminate the torture, the victim's legs would be broken below the knee with the club, thus preventing him from pushing himself upward to relieve the tension on the pectoral and chest muscles. Either rapid suffocation or coronary insufficiency followed in the case of Christ. The legs of the two thieves were crushed besides him, but Christ was not because of the executioners observing that he was already dead. End quote. Something a little more interesting in Christ's death that I want you to, to, to listen to. One of the executioners thrust a spear through into the Christ side, and it's recorded in John 19.34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water 
came out. Dr. D.C. Truman Davis speaks of this. He says that there was an escape of watery fluid that escaped from the sac surrounding the heart. We therefore have rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Christ died not of the usual crucifixion of death by suffocation, but of a heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by the fluid in the pericardium. Another doctor describes it this way. He says, blood and water and a small amount of pericardial fluid up to 20 or 30 cc's is normally present in good health that is surrounding your heart sac even now. It is possible, however, that with the wound piercing the pericardium in the heart that there was enough pericardial fluid that it would escape and be described as water. Dr. Bergesman goes on to say that the post-mortem findings in several cases of ruptured hearts show that the pericardial fluid in the cavity was not occupied by 20 or 30 cc's, but closer to 500 cc's and freshly clotted blood, and this would give us the reason for Christ's death. So Christ did not die by suffocation. He died from a broken heart in a very, very literal sense. As the weight of our sin came upon him, at the cross, he cries, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many scholars suggest that it was at that moment that the sin of the world was placed upon Jesus for that moment. A tragic picture that Jesus went through physically upon that cross. The worst was when the sin came upon, upon himself. And you can be sure that despite how horrible the pain was that he went through physically, the worst moment on the cross was to have the, the weight of sin upon him. And he cried out in verse 50 with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I want to close with this. When you look at what Jesus Christ has done for you, if you know this morning that you have eternal life, then the very fact that you have that knowledge lets me know that you know that he died for you. You know that he died for you. That it was supposed to be you on that cross. It was supposed to be a, it was a substitutionary death. It should have been me. That all those things that happened to Jesus was for, for my sin. That should have come upon me. Because the consequences, the wages of sin is death. I should have died that death on the cross. But Jesus, in a sense, in all of our lives, says, stand aside and I will go ahead and I will take responsibility for you. And he went through all of those things Jesus dealt with for our sake. Now, what is our response as a church? What, is, it our, what is, our, is our reasonable response? What is our logical response? For someone to do that for me, I can't help but want to tell the rest of the world of the love that He has displayed for me to them. If anyone would do that for me, I can't help but desire to serve Him all the rest of my life. If anyone would do that for me, you're going to have a hard time keeping my mouth closed about this man. You really would. And when I think about how he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father and he lives to make intercession for us, I can't help but him looking at us at his church. He says, I want everyone else to know what I want to for them. As we close and get ready to enter communion, I want to close with this. It's, it's Christmas. The season is here. We got the decorations up already. And, and you know, people, they'll express their, their you know, their, their, Holiday joy to you. They, you know, they, someone may come up to you and say, Hey, Merry Christmas. Now, if they're sincere about that, you know, and certainly you can respond in a like manner and say, Merry Christmas to you. And it kind of means something. But what does it cost for that person to say, Merry Christmas? Maybe a couple hours ringing a bell out in front of the department store. An afternoon there. But it doesn't mean that much compared really to, to the person who maybe took the time to write a Christmas card to you. 
Because just saying Merry Christmas doesn't cost anything. You know, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, not too costly. But hey, man, I take the time to write on a card, and I take the time to find that right card, and you know, maybe I, you know, put some scripture verse in there that really speaks to my heart, and you get that card, and it means something. Got that card, and you open it up, and you read it, and there's a little bit more than someone just saying Merry Christmas to you. Why? Because I got a card. It's kind of neat, you know, it costs something, you know, appreciate the card. You may even take their address and I'm going to give them a card back. You know, send it back to them and do it the following year. So telling them Merry Christmas, that's great. Card a little more special. But if we really want to show our affection, you know, in cost and in value and in gratitude, we'll take the time, we'll go and we'll buy someone a present. And we carefully pick, that, pick out that present based on, you know, what that person's need is. And, and come Christmas morning or whenever they get that present, they open it and they go, oh, wow. Man, you, you were thinking about me. You knew this is exactly what I want. You care about me. Oh, it's, it's so much more than just Merry Christmas. Even more than just getting a card. You've got a present for me. You care about me. You really love me. And you've really shown love and displayed love because you've taken that, that time in selecting that gift. And it means something. Kind of see what I'm talking about? Someone says, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, nice gesture. Someone gets your card, nice card, nice gesture. But if someone gives you a present, oh, cool, I got a present. And there's a reason I want to close with this. For us, think about what we just read, what Christ did for us. We'll look at the cross, your Christ this morning, and to just say, hey, Jesus died for my sins. There's so much more than that. Because when we say, Jesus died for my sins, it's the same like saying, well, Merry Christmas. But there's so much more. Like a card? Yeah, he gave us his word. That's great. But no, like a present. Yeah, God's greatest gift to us, his son, Jesus Christ. But so much more than that. You see, when you look into the way my son, God, would say to you, died for your sins, you can no longer say, oh, Jesus died for my sins. No, you say, Jesus died for my sins. He died for my sins. And I look at the way in which He died for my sins. It automatically convicts, convicts me. It automatically changes me. It comforts me. Because I see no one has loved me that much. Man, I want to tell you something this morning. If you have that personal knowledge of Jesus Christ in your heart, you know how much He loves you. You know how much He did for you. And if you've never received that gift of salvation... And you've heard this, then it's blasphemy if you don't give your life to Christ this morning. It's blasphemy. You're rejecting what he's done for you. God loves you so much. I can't think of a better way to close out what we just read than spending time in communion and thanking our Lord for what he's done for us. Jesus died for our sins. As far as the east is from the west, our sin is put away from us to the deepest sea, never to be come up again. Our sin is gone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying for our sins, rising again from the dead, and giving us this life. Lord, there are not words to say that can describe how thankful we are for what you've done. All we could do is just open up our hearts and say, Lord, I'll take the gift of salvation that you've given to us. All we can do is, is say, Lord, I will serve you with my whole life, my whole heart, my whole mind, my whole strength. Lord, I will love you every single breath that I have and on into eternity. And Father, I do pray if there's anyone here that has not given their life to you, 
they're not born again, Lord, would you just touch their heart and let them see that they need to, to come to you today and turn from their sin and be born again today. And for those of us that are born again, Lord, help us to realize how much you love us. As we prepare our hearts to receive this communion, the bread that symbolizes your body that was broken for us, the juice that, that shows to us your blood that was shed for us, we are reminded of that love. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.